Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, welcome to August. Welcome to August. We are in Eclipse Month. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's get it's getting close. We're doing our family road trip. That's that's getting closer. It's in like uh, a week and a half now that we that we're headed out. The last day is the eclipse day, so or the next to last day, I guess, because it's going to take us two days to get back. So it's starting to become real, um, and we're getting kind of deep into into planning of what we're bringing with us on our trip since we're going to be out on the road for. Uh, 10 or 11 days and uh and i've started to think about like game plan for the eclipse and all of that so yeah it's it's getting real now yeah uh so if you are like us and you are uh, preparing to view the eclipse in north america we have a couple links for you uh, and we do have one more episode between now and the eclipse but yes. i wanted to, to get this stuff out there um the first is a blog post by a friend of the show Emily Lactawalla, uh, she posted this just uh, a couple of days ago on the Planetary Society blog, talking about how to share an eclipse with with kids. And so there's some video stuff and some uh, some fun stuff you could do with kids. Probably geared a little bit younger than yours, but I think it's perfect for like my elementary school aged yep. kids. And keep, keep um, in mind that you can have fun with this eclipse is basically going to be visible everywhere in North America. Um, and so, and even parts of like Central America and Northern South America. So um, if you can't get to an, a zone of totality, but you're still in North America, there are things you can do with pinhole cameras or eclipse glasses or anything like that and have fun talking about how eclipses work. And uh, pinhole cameras are awesome. I talked about them on one of our previous shows about the eclipse where I was confused about what number and a penumbra was in that episode. Anyway, um, <laughs> how like the pinhole camera really works. You can put a pinhole in a piece of paper and look on the ground and the shadow that gets cast will in the middle of it have an eclipse shape that is the actual eclipse shape it's awesome yeah and and super freaky <laughs> yeah uh but really cool so we have that in the uh in the show notes as well as the planetary uh societies their sort of overall eclipse guide we linked to that a couple weeks ago but i'll put it in the show notes again uh this week uh we also have a piece uh from the verge from lauren grush talking about eclipse glasses and how nasa and some other agencies and, and groups have really kind of rallied around just a handful of brands. So there's actually a certification that you should look for when looking at Eclipse glasses, because if you uh, get that wrong, it's, uh, it's not good. I believe that the, the medical term is your eyes get vaporized. Yeah. Sorry to use that medical jargon. And and unfortunately it sounds like what's happening is that there are, um, there are companies that are selling fake glasses on Amazon, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a little bit scary. I bought mine from Great American Eclipse, I believe, a while ago, Me too. and they've been sitting in a in a little plastic bag uh, that they came in, and they're still sitting there. And I'll I'll take them with. But you know, definitely, you you can't you know don't use they like frosted glass or welder's goggles or things like that. You know, you want the actual like official stuff that is blocking all of the all of the radiation. And uh, if you don't have that, then yes, resort to uh, like a pinhole camera. Yeah. So we'll have this in the, in the show notes. What you're looking for is uh, ISO 12312-2. So it's an international standard that has been come up with to make these things safe to look at. 
uh, to look at the eclipse. And if so, I, I bought them from the same site you did. I, I opened the bag after reading this article, and mine are okay. Um, but uh, I did just like I haven't put them on, and so I put them on just like in the house. And it's really wild how much light these things block out. I mean, it's um, they're really incredible. They look so cheap, and they're cheap to buy, but they really do an important job. Uh, so please uh, take some time, make sure that, that what you're using or what you're going to buy is is correct. And I would say, if you haven't bought any yet, I'd probably go ahead and do it. We are getting pretty close, yeah. and you don't want to be uh, caught without without them. So No, in fact, one of the stories of the eclipse is going to be and we already know this is going to happen, is a rush. Like, awareness is starting to build, but mm-hmm. as we record this, we're still um, many days out, right? We're still uh, t- three weeks out, essentially, to almost three weeks out. And as we get closer, it's going to keep building, and more people are going to be talking about it. And so the stores of the glasses are going to go. And the other thing that's going to happen is people are going to start trying to like plan on going to the eclipse. Hey, did you hear there's an eclipse next week? Let's reserve a hotel room in that town. And as we've said, it's not going to happen. Going to uh, be sad. Yeah, because people have been planning for this for years now. But there's and there'll be people who like we're going to drive to it for the day, and so roads are going to get backed up. So there are going to be stories after the eclipse of people who couldn't get to the eclipse because the traffic was so bad. That's totally going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, to at least to the zone of totality, uh, so that's all. It's inevitable, basically, because there's going to be more demand than is ever placed on the roads to the areas that are in the eclipse zone, and um, and so it'll be. That's the reason we're getting to our place where we've got the campsite like the day before, um, the afternoon before, because I I don't even want to be out on the road on that until it's over, and then I anticipate I will sit in terrible traffic on the road out afterward yeah but um but i don't want to deal with it beforehand but you know if you don't have a place to stay in the eclipse zone you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do it and it'll be a little hairy and give yourself a lot of time so if you can prepare whatever you can prepare now do it yeah absolutely the uh i mentioned that we're going to a a state park and i actually got a phone call from one of the rangers you know because we actually signed up because they had limited spots and you know he was he was saying you know there's no place to stay near the park we're staying about 45 minutes away and he was like, you know, you want to be here. We're going to open the gate at six. You know, you have a spot, but we can't guarantee that you get in. And so, you know, be here early and yeah. uh, kind of walking us through the area and stuff. So if you're going someplace that's organized, you know, the whoever's doing the organization, you know, probably has a plan on their website or you can get in touch with them and see what's going on. But this is not something that you could casually do, I think. And, and you know, you said that it's sort of the the momentum and the, the knowledge of this is growing. I had just this weekend a family member of mine who like vaguely knows I have a space podcast, but not really. Um, asked me like, "Oh, hey, did you hear about this eclipse? Like, we're thinking about going up." I'm like, "You should plan today." Like, <laughs> I basically gave them the yeah. whole spill we just gave on the show, and because uh, you don't, you know, it is is such a rare thing. So we'll have all that in the uh, in the notes. But yeah, definitely have your planning done, and, and please buy uh, appropriate glasses. We don't want anyone to be hurt right so. and I'll, I'll say again i am going to be at the south mean and butte in idaho in mean and idaho on the night of the 20th and the morning of the 21st so if you're somebody who ended up going to that location which is uh i'm not a not a paid endorsement but this is where i'm going it's idahosolareclipse.com i think they still have some room in maybe in some of the campsites or some of the day parking. Anyway, if you are by any chance going there to see the eclipse, let me know and maybe we'll say hi. 
like because uh, we will be around there on Sunday night and Monday morning before the eclipse. And then as soon as the eclipse is done, I'm telling you, we're out of there. Us and everybody else in the world is out <laughs> yeah. of there. Yeah. Uh, so we have a couple uh, other items of pre-flight checklists we want to get through. Uh, the first is a Kickstarter project. Uh, I feel like I've, I've sort of cornered space Kickstarters for this show. Yeah. Uh, Good job. Somebody has to the, do it. Uh, yeah, someone sent this in to us, so forgive me, uh, I, could not, I could not find the tweet. Um, but someone sent this in uh, by the Space Center at Houston, um, and it is to restore uh, the historic mission control that, we, that was used during the Apollo days. And so this is at NASA Johnson. This is where the flight control team uh, was headquartered for Apollo, and uh, they talk a lot, as you might imagine, about Apollo 11. And this this area has been open uh, for tours and for visitors for uh, a long time and is in need of a lot of TLC. So there's some pictures in here. Um, and the, the goal is to, to put this room back together uh, as it was during Apollo 11 and down to like the dials being set in the, in the right place. And there's lots of photos from that day, so they have they have the idea of how everything should be, um, and you can be involved, which is which is really cool. So uh, you can help uh, fund this restoration. So I jumped in, uh, uh, Jason. You'll be happy to know that I have a meatball sticker uh, and some other stuff uh, headed to my house uh, as a backer. So so yeah, if you if you're interested in this, um, I think it's definitely worth a uh, worth a look. Hooray, meatball! Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a it's a good. I like this. Um, it seems a little weird. You and I were talking about this uh, off air that it's a little weird because it's like a government thing and all that. But this is it's kind of like you know crowdfunding or otherwise you know the public f- helping to do restoration of historic buildings and things like that. That happens a lot, and that's that's what they're uh, that's what they're going for here is trying to make this a uh, to get people to donate so that. Um, this thing can be restored because it is like it's like it's not only historic it is kind of iconic this is the historic and iconic when we think of mission control and space it's this this is definitely what i picture and they've they've got 17 days to go they had a goal of 250,000 they're at 336,000 so they've met their goal which is awesome Uh, they met it pretty quick i looked at this several days ago i think they were already there so it's exciting to see uh, some of the community and, and space enthusiasts kind of rally behind this yeah, sounds great. I'll uh, I'll back it. I'll go do that. All right, so right, yay. Uh, so, uh, lastly, in in pre flight checklist, uh, we're going to back up a little bit and talk about the Orion missions. So, a while ago, like maybe towards back in the spring, there was a um, some articles about NASA and the government looking at when to put crew on Orion's flight. So they have EM-1 and EM-2, and the original plan was EM-1 was going to be uncrewed initially, and then they said, oh, well, we'll put a crew on the first launch, which uh, a lot of people kind of scratched their heads at, I think, I think the two of us included. Uh, but the report that came out of that conversation is, is finished. We have a link to it. It was uh, uncovered by a Freedom of Information request, I believe, by BuzzFeed. And so there's a PDF of it in the notes. And and basically, they decided to, to stick to the plan because EM-1 is not going to be ready for crew in the way that they want it to be. It, you could put crew in the capsule, but there's some some stuff that that you would want to have, including like crew displays and controls, so the whole thing would be remotely controlled. 
Uh, the abort system isn't going to be ready yet. There's some questions about environmental control. So they're, it's an interesting look at where they are in the process of getting EM1 ready, but I think definitely builds the case that leaving it uncrewed is the, at this point at least, is the right answer. Yeah, it's nice to see the um, the rationale here, but I know definitely people saw it and, and thought, Oh, but that's really cool. Like, wouldn't that be really cool? <laughs> like, it's it would have been would be cool, but like, there are lots of good reasons why they didn't want to do it. Yeah. So, one of those in the show notes, um, you know, that basically to get summed up as saying it, it's feasible to fly crew on EM one, but the there's risk involved, there's schedule issues involved. These other issues aren't done yet, and and kind of the way they where they ended is. It would be a short-term, you know, it'd be a nice short-term victory, but long-term, it's too risky, and we're kind of thinking long-term with these missions. I, I think as they should be. So, yes. uh, so yeah. So thumbs up from liftoff. You know, we weren't questioned <laughs> by the committee, but if no. we had been, we would have said this. We're available. <laughs> yeah, call us. Just uh, send us a tweet at liftoff podcast. So this week, uh, we are going to start a, uh, a new series on the show. I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, also, it's probably not going to be every episode. I think we're going to yeah. kind of dip in and out of the series um, over, you know, probably towards the end of the year. But we wanted to take a look at NASA's crewed missions before the shuttle. And um, we have we have lots of emails and stuff about doing what other countries do. We're going to get into those, I think, starting next year. Uh, but we want to talk about... Uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And Apollo, of course, out of the three, is by far the most well-known because, again, it put men on the moon. But uh, there's so much stuff that happened in those earlier missions that is totally worth talking about. And so we're going to start in the beginning. We're going to start with Mercury today and and kind of slowly work our way through this, you know, you know, really just a decade of history. I mean, all this stuff takes place um in the 1960s and kind of spilling into the 1970s a little bit. But uh, it's amazing the progress that NASA made in that time span. So we kind of wanted to start uh, to start at the beginning. And the beginning for this means 1958. This is uh, it's before either of us. I think it's the year my mom was born, which kind of puts this in funny perspective to me. Hmm. Um, but Mercury was uh, ran 1958 to 1963. And the goal was um, – it wasn't a building block to the moon yet. It was just to put a man in orbit before the Soviet Union. How'd that work out for them? Uh, they didn't make that goal. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, that's not to downplay uh, Mercury's importance. Uh, it involved the work of an estimated 2 million people across many states. You know, we, we speak about this all the time. We talk about the, the government angle. One reason the space industry – is so important to people in Congress because it employs people all across the country, right? There's all these companies and vendors doing little parts of things all over the place. And and that was true even back in 1958. Uh, Two million people across across the U.S. working on this. Eventually, six Americans would fly to space and four went into orbit. So they did they didn't meet the goal of going to orbit, but the Soviet Union beat us there. The, the uh, Apollo is where they turned it around. So these first, when we talk about Mercury and Gemini, it's going to be a story of like trying to play catch up to the Russians, basically. Um, and then, and then the tables get turned with Apollo. Spoilers for that. So uh, let's talk about the <laughs> perhaps most famous thing about Project Mercury, which is the Mercury Seven astronauts. These are America's original astronauts. They are uh, even today, I think, legendary. 
they were certainly all treated as huge you know heroes in the 60s the names will be familiar the mercury seven were scott carpenter gordon cooper john glenn gus grissom wally shira alan shepherd and deke slayton several of those went on to have other stories to be told about them in uh in space beyond mercury um, I'll also point out, we've, ta- we've mentioned it before, touched on it a little bit. Uh, there's an episode of The Incomparable, episode 326, that you might want to listen to, which is about the movie The Right Stuff, which is mm-hmm. about this. And um, in that, uh, Sam Shepard is one of the stars of that and gives a great performance as, uh, as uh, what is he? He's Chuck Yeager, I think, in that. I think so, yeah. And uh, he just passed away. So RIP Sam Shepard, playwright, yeah. actor. Um, a great performance in The Right Stuff. Uh, of course, there's the Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, as well, is about this. There's a lot, but it's a cool movie if you haven't seen it, and then you can listen to a podcast where you and I, Stephen, and a bunch of other people talked about it. Mm-hmm. It's a very long movie. <laughs> I believe that's my primary complaint is in the Incomparable episode. <laughs> very long movie. It is a, a yeah. long movie, but it's good, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. So uh, basically, this out of the Mercury 7, members of this group flew on, get this, uh, every class of NASA manned orbital spacecraft of the 20th century. That's right. It's pretty incredible. Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and the space shuttle. Uh, the only one of these who didn't fly on those is Gus Grissom because he was killed in the Apollo 1 pad fire. But mm-hmm. um, everyone else made it uh, to, at, at the very least, uh, you know, the, those those early missions, and of course, all the way through the space shuttle. John Glenn, who flew on the space shuttle, of course, uh, was actually the last survivor of the class um, and died last year, as we mentioned on the show when he passed. Um, NASA's original plan was to cast a wider net when naming astronauts. There was a whole uh, funny scene in The Right Stuff where they're like, uh, we could get acrobats. Um, we could get long-distance runners. And President Eisenhower said, no, why don't we just get test pilots? Why don't we get people from the military and with test pilot backgrounds? They're going to understand aeronautics. They're going to understand what's going on in the craft that are going to be developed. Uh, they, un- they understand the risks. They are the right people to do this. They have the right stuff if you will. Mm. So um, among the requirements for being a member of the Mercury 7, you couldn't be taller than 180 centimeters. That's 5'11", which means that I qualify barely by height, but they also couldn't weigh more than 180 pounds. I would have to go on a little bit of a diet to get under the 82 (laughs) kilogram thing. Basically, the capsule was very small, and so you had to fit. I, uh, I I would not qualify now because of my age, but of course my age in 1958 would not be a problem. I didn't exist. Um, <laughs> but because you had to be under age 40, you had to have, have a bachelor's degree or equivalent. And here is that key test pilot thing. 1,500 hours of flying time and qualification to fly a jet aircraft, even though, of course, there were essentially almost no controls on the Mercury capsule. This was a way for them to say, this is these are the people we want. We want people who understand this sort of thing. Um, Stephen, do you qualify to be an astronaut? Uh, I, I, I missed by half an inch. I'm like 5'11 and a half. Mm, I didn't know uh, you were half I'm an a- inch taller than me. Look at that. Yeah. I'm just under 5'11. I claim 5'11, yeah. but when measured, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm a just a hair under. Literally. Just a, just a, a little bit wanting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm under the weight limit. I'm under the age limit. I have a bachelor's degree. 
Uh, I do not have 1,500 hours of flying time, nor am I qualified to fly a jet yeah. aircraft. Good news. Just get in a so, jet and fly it for 63 days, and you're good. Uh, yeah, I'll just uh, I'll be right back. Just fly get around. I'll, I'll see yeah. you in two months of flying. <laughs> uh, so NASA, NASA got 500 applications for this. 69 candidates were brought into Washington, D.C. to be po- potentially part of the Mercury program in two groups. Uh, and here's what happened. They they interviewed people in the first group, picked seven out, and said, Ed said second group, we don't even need to see you. They, they're like, <laughs> we, it's like the stories of a movie, a movie casting when they're like, oh, and then and then they walked in the door and were like, oh yeah, that's the person we're gonna we're gonna cast in this movie. Send everybody else yeah. home. We've got it. Yeah, um, don't even need to see him. Yeah. Also, maybe they have like a, a, a lunch to get to or something, and they didn't want to waste their time. It's like good enough. We got these. We got these seven guys. So the, the, among the tests they did, a lot of this is depicted in the right stuff. Uh, hours on treadmills and tilt tables, submerging submerging their feet in ice water, giving them doses of castor oil, giving them enemas five enemas i believe Stephen. five yeah. enemas you know this is really weird this list seemed really familiar to me and then i realized it's the exact same testing we do on new relay fm hosts yeah so i mean basically the same thing i gotta say i thought the enema was a little bit far but i did want to be on the network so you know yeah well <laughs> i'm glad you pulled through uh so eventually this crowd was whittled down from uh, the the two groups to the to the sixty nine candidates to, uh, it finally got down to the seven names that we know and they were introduced in Washington on April 9th, nineteen fifty nine and they were instantly famous any book or movie you read about these guys this introduction is always a huge part because the the hotel was just like flooded with press they were instantly famous and this is. You know, this is well before the world that we live in now with, you know, news breaking on Twitter. They were instantly famous because of newspapers and magazines. Uh, in fact, they and their wives each signed a contract with Life magazine mm. uh, for exclusive access to their private lives. I found some of this stuff on Google Books. You can kind of flip through some of this. Um, as a side note, 1959 Time magazine was basically just paid for by cigarettes. Like The advertising is very jarring today in our world. Uh, but... These men and their wives and their families were put on a pedestal and they were really held up. And NASA actively sought to protect the astronauts and the agency from any negative publicity. They wanted to maintain an image of these were like clean cut family men. There were transgressions from time to time. Some of that shows up in the right stuff. Yeah. But but all in all, I think NASA really wanted these to be like wholesome American heroes. Well, yes, they definitely wanted to project that even though they were they were they were test pilots they were testosterone laced uh cowboys in a lot of ways they were reckless you don't i think in many cases get to be a test pilot without being a little bit reckless and a little bit wild and you know we've talked about it on the show before um there are not very many stable marriages in the history of early astronauts that there are there are very few i think jim lovell and John Glenn are two of the only examples of that. I mean, there are very few. They, they they were wild. And the PR campaign was to project them as wholesome. Uh, good for them. You know, it makes sense that you do that. But th- the reality was a little bit different. So these seven, they're thrust into the spotlight. They start to undergo testing and training. And again, a lot of this is in the public eye. That Time uh, magazine that I dug up has a lot of information about their training. So, you know, you spoke about some of it, but they get tested for tolerance to noise and vibration, G-forces, personal isolation. Um, they were really pushed to the extreme 
uh, for guys who had already worked at the edge, right? You know, it's not like me and you, we would fold instantly, but pushing test pilots as far as they could go, um, simulating G forces, uh, all sorts of crazy contraptions. If you look at pictures of these things, uh, they did not have a, uh, a gentle training period. No, the the images. I'm actually looking through that Life magazine now. That you that, that we'll put the link in the show notes from Google Books and and just like people on the the spinning table and and uh, yeah, it's it's there's some wild stuff going on here. Which you would you would expect. Like again, some of this is about seeing how people respond to this stuff. And these are test pilots, but we, you know, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about space, and they wanted to make sure that these guys were up for whatever they might face. They're doing this training. They're in flight simulators. They're rehearsing missions. Um, but this is in parallel with the preparation of their hardware. And we're going to get more into the capsule next time. Um, but I want to talk a little bit today about some of the test flights that took place in the early years of the project. There are 20 uncrewed flights during Project Mercury. The first one was in August 1959. Uh, it was to test the launch escape system, so the, the the little tower above the capsule that would pull the capsule away from the stack if something went wrong. Uh, it sort of worked, but it fired on its own 30 minutes before it was planned, and uh, so it was deemed a failure. I'm sure if you were on the ground or anywhere near that, uh, it was quite frightening, but it uh, was a little bit of a misfire there. They had subsequent tests that were more successful. Uh, they took place aboard a variety of small launch vehicles. Again, really looking at the the um, escape system was the big thing. And eventually, they got to using the two tests, the two rockets that would be used with crew. Uh, there's Redstone, which is a smaller rocket for suborbital flights, and then Atlas. Uh, the bigger vehicle to put the capsule into orbit. Yeah, if you read about this, the Redstone rockets are terrifying because they like, I mean, partially because they were early, but they were like, they were really concerned about whether they would just explode. I think the Redstones had some real problems. Um, but it's interesting to see the parallels here between uh, like Redstone and Atlas are very much like, and the names reflect it, New, New Shepard and New Glenn, where Blue Origin is working on this. Like first you need your suborbital and then you get your orbital and you kind of build up from there. Um, the, uh, you know, while this is all going on, the, the, you know, not quite like testing so much as training. How do you get control of a spinning spacecraft? They had this thing called the multi-axis spin test inertia facility. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah. It's a Mastiff, Mastiff, because it's got to have Mastiff. a fun backronym. But this is basically, uh, they spin you around and you had a controller and the idea was to get back in orientation, uh, and so it's not just, hey, let's spin them on a table and see what happens. This is literally like you're spinning and you have to move the controls to try to get back in sync, which is actually something that astronauts would need to do and did need to do in space. So they did that. Um, but uh, that that looks like a real vomit comet of a, of mm-hmm. a contraption. Yeah. yeah, I felt tingly just looking at it. It's not good. So they spent a lot of time in simulators. So... Um, that that was uh, that's part of it. If you've seen Apollo thirteen or anything like that, the idea that you're in the simulator and you're practicing and communicating with the ground as if you were in space. They did all of that stuff too, and all of this leads up to in September fifty nine, the Mercury Atlas one 
first launch attempt of the Mercury capsule. And the idea is suborbital test flight, re-entry of the spacecraft. You go up, you come back down. So test number one, what happens? The Atlas rocket. Um, how should, what, what does Elon Musk say? <laughs> uh, rapid, unscheduled disassembly? Yeah. Is that so, what it is? So yeah, yeah, that's it. It was, a, it was a structural failure 58 seconds after launch. So, you know, they got some data out of that. Uh, the the as I mentioned about the Redstone, like the first Mercury Red Redstone uh, flight test, the engine shut down immediately after liftoff, so the rocket rose about four inches and then went back <laughs> down onto the pad. And the this is my, this is my favorite. And this is my the, favorite one. <laughs> the escape tower fires, the parachutes open, but the 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 Mercury capsule just stays on top of the rocket. Talk about failure to launch. This is the original failure to launch. Like yeah. the sad trombone. Like get the get the guy with the trombone <laughs> out there because now is the time. It's not. Not, not. Good. It's so sad. It, it's so sad. Yeah, that was. It's like three, two, one. Here we go. Oh no. Uh, anyway, things started to smooth out after that. Um, they got more successful test flights with Redstone, Atlas, and Mercury ready to go. And so by early '61, so we're talking more than a year later after that first test, um, they they went through all of these other tests and they were ready for Alan Shepard to take the first American suborbital flight. It was a week. Before his launch, Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space. Now, was that bad luck? No, I think the strong implications in the right stuff is that Gagarin's launch prompted them to push ahead with launching Shepard. Um, it does make you wonder if they had just decided to rush it, they probably could have been there first, but they were trying to do it the right way, and then the Soviets beat them by you know, by a little bit. And so Shepard became the first American in space instead of the first person in space. Yeah, but not the first in uh, in orbit, just a little suborbital up and down redstone flight. Yep. Yep, up and down. Um so next time we get into this, we're going to talk about those missions. We're going to talk more about the the capsule itself as you said. It's very tiny. I, I saw a uh, a drawing, I'll see if I can dig it up again of all the capsules, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and then Orion to scale with each other. I mean, this thing is tiny. You're you're not moving around. You're not floating around like you see in the, in the Apollo footage. You're basically strapped to a couch the entire time. But uh, but we'll get into that uh, and some other stuff next time. If you want to find links to the stuff we discussed this week, it's all on our website relay.fm/liftoff/fifty two. Man, made it to fifty two. Jason, woohoo! That's two years. Two years. Yep. Happy anniversary. Yeah, happy anniversary you, to uh, you. Yeah. If you want to uh, get in touch, you can do that uh, via email on that page, or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is J Snell, J E S. Nope. J E. Nope. J S E. Duh. Hmm. I'm not going to spell it. J S N E L L. There you go. I have. I've been in the Mastiff too long. Mm-hmm. My brain's all turned to scrambled eggs. And you can find what's left of me on Twitter at ISMH. And we post links about space things on our Tumblr at liftoffpodcast.space. Real URL if you want to see, like, the basically when we find articles and things that were, are interesting, we just stick them there. Yeah, some of that stuff ends up in the show, but a lot doesn't. It's kind of another venue for us to share stuff we're interested in. Yeah. So, yeah, so, uh, Jason, I will uh, I'll talk to you next time. All right, we'll be back in a fortnight for one more pre-eclipse episode. Uh, But until then, bye, everybody. Adios.